Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 92, Reinventing Synagogue. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we're here today continuing our exploration of Reform Judaism leading up to the biennial meeting of the Reform Movement in Boston, which is coming up in just a few weeks. We've looked at the history of reforming Judaism, both as a concept and as a movement itself. We've looked at that in Europe, in America, talked to some of the leaders of the Reform Movement in America today. And we are now moving on to talk to a couple of leaders of synagogues that are doing innovative work on the ground, trying to be responsive to the needs of a new generation of Jews who may not be interested or connecting with the kinds of offerings that a typical synagogue provides. Our guests today are Matthew Gewertz, the senior rabbi of B'nai Jeshurun in Short Hills, New Jersey, and Ben Spratt, the associate rabbi of Congregation Rodef Shalom in Manhattan. These two congregations have pooled their resources and their efforts to build an organization in New York City called Tribe, the mission of which is inspired by Jewish tradition and culture. Tribe empowers New York millennials to find meaning and build community. We're going to learn a lot more about the organization in our conversation, and we're also welcoming our third guest, Blair Album, who is one of the founding board members of Tribe. She is not a rabbi. She is an attorney working in New York and a member of the millennial generation that Tribe serves. And so we're fascinated to discuss from both ends, both the uh, people who Tribe was set up to serve and also these two rabbis who were responsive to the needs that they were seeing outside of the traditional structure of a synagogue. Matt, Ben, and Blair, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's really great to have you. Thanks for having us. Well, let's just jump right into it. Blair, you were one of the founding board members of Tribe. And before we uh, jump into the story of how it all came about from the uh, more formal synagogue perspective, I'd love for you to help us understand a little bit about what Tribe really is and how did it come about from your perspective? Sure. Many of us, we had had this connection to Judaism, you know, since, since childhood, um, but we were, and we were really looking to, after college, because we had sort of left it behind, um, you know, in our college years, and we wanted to come back and sort of have, make a community again, primarily for folks who, you know, were, were just out of college, and in between sort of the, the college period and the child-rearing period is really how I would explain it. Um, you know, we wanted a community, but we weren't necessarily drawn to the, you know, the brick-and-mortar synagogue. This was sort of meant to form um, a companion community um, that sort of is, a, is adjacent to the brick-and-mortar mortar synagogue. Life has changed in very significant and meaningful ways for millennial Jews, um, and not just for, for millennial Jews, but for all of millennials and really for all of us, you know, as, as humans. Um, and, and part of it, quite fr frankly, was that, you know, when I looked at what was available at the synagogue for people who were my age, a lot of it actually was families. 
you saw that people were returning to synagogues um, because they had kids and they wanted to sort of start you know, raising a Jewish family. They wanted their kids to be in Hebrew school or in day school or, you know, have, have a connection to the community that way. But for sort of this lost gen lost generation, lost group of, of folks who had just graduated from college and who weren't quite ready or aren't quite ready to join um, a synagogue, we still wanted to find ways to connect to other Jews. We were going to take the synagogue model and kind of push it to the side and say, well, how can we connect with other Jews um, who are around similar age, similar stages of life? And it grew very organically from there because, you know, in order to answer that question, how do we do this? You have to sort of get folks together in a room and say, well, what matters to you? What what aspects of Judaism do you want to explore and how do you want to explore them? So just so that our listeners can um, know exactly what we're talking about before we jump into some of those really important questions like what is it that people are looking for, could you describe a little more what it is that, that came out on the other end? You know, what does Tribe do? What's it all about? Concretely, I would say that we offer a number of events over the course of, you know, the year. Um, we have Shabbat, uh, monthly Shabbat, that often takes place at um, a local watering hole, um, although we we've done it at other venues too, including um, a great art gallery uh, downtown. Um, so that's one sort of... Set Does that of mean offering. services? Service. It's, it is first, it's preceded by a happy half hour um, where everyone can sort of mingle and get to know each other. Um, and then we'll have, you know, a 45 to an hour long, 45 minutes to an hour long service, um, followed by another round of happy hour. Um, and, you know, pleasant, there's a pleasant surprise, but, you know, a lot of folks ended up going out afterwards. So we would, you know, leave the venue where we would be having the service and the happy hour. And, you know, a large group will follow to, you know, the next bar or, or whatever it is. So that's, that's the primary offering, I would say. Um, but then there are other events that either happen on a one-off basis. And then, you know, there are series that we've created too. For example, this is very popular. We have meet, meet and greets, or I wouldn't say meet and greets. I would say there are discussions with various people out in the workforce who, you know, they'll talk about their job or what they're doing or their industry. Um, and it's a forum for discussion, you know, for a particular industry, but it's also a, a networking opportunity for, for folks, too. Another example of a series that has just recently been initiated is a mindfulness group. You know, they, they meet and, uh, you know, their activities range from like group meditation to sort of discussions about mindfulness. So, I mean, really, when I when I say a range, I mean, it's a very broad range so that, you know, everybody has an opportunity to sort of tap into the community. And I would be remiss not to say that, you know, we're very encouraging of members or people who, you know, are interested who want to create their own groups um, and their own host their own events. So, Ben, could you give us a little bit of the story from the rabbi's eye view of, first of all, how did this happen? Did did you uh, track down some folks or did they track you down? And then what happened? 
So there was an interesting confluence of events. Matt's former assistant rabbi, Josh Stanton, um, and I had started a conversation, and it was really dealing with the shifting challenges, questions, opportunities with the rising generation. Um, when Matt had actually been an associate rabbi here, he had built a very robust um, young professionals group that had then grown up, aged out, and gone off into synagogue world. And he had then at TBJ, at B'nai Jeshurun, had started up a, another group. And as Josh and I were talking about the needs of millennials at the same time, people like Blair were establishing themselves here in the city post-college and were wanting and yearning for things. And so we started to have hundreds of cups of coffee and to hear where they're at, what they're looking for, and almost you know, think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What are the basic elements that they actually want in life? And most of them were not saying what they were craving was prayer um, or Hebrew. Uh, what they were saying is they wanted networking opportunities to advance their career and help them figure out what they want to do as they grow up. And they wanted meaningful senses of relationship and belonging. And so Tribe was really born uh, looking at the culture of millennials which is a do-it-yourself kind of generation, a generation that's very skeptical of authority and has seen pretty much every great heroic pedestal toppled over, and that has created the sense authenticity is something that we need to build ourselves. Also a generation, I think, that has found synagogue life something that was more about obligation or a call to the past, and they were looking for a meaningful search in the present. And we decided to see if we could kind of meld a different, few different theories together. Um, so Josh in brainstorming with Matt and me in brainstorming with my boss decided to throw together network theory with community organizing uh, theory and micro, micro church planting models. And Tribe was born. Um, basically, we wanted to see if we could do something different than most Jewish millennial organizations and actually have millennials build the very thing they want. Uh, rather than us Jewish professionals build something and invite them to come to, what would happen if we gave over money and power and reins and said, build it? Tribe is using Judaism as a toolkit in order to empower millennials. Notice it's not Jewish millennials because 10 to 20% of the people that come to Tribe are not Jewish. Um, to find meaning and build community, two elements that we think um, pretty much everyone's looking for, but millennials are looking for. And the very seeds of tribe were trying to see if this board could create their own community. And here we are four years later, and at least some of that theory is playing out. Sending uh, our, our next question over to Matt, um, I'm curious, we, we heard a hint of this from Blair, but um, help, us, help us situate this in a broader context a little bit. I mean, Blair spoke about how we're in this time, this context where um, Jewish millennials are changing, millennials are changing, the world is changing. Um, how is that happening from your perspective as a congregational rabbi and as, you know, just a person traveling along this changing era in the same way that all of us are too? I arrive out at a suburban synagogue about 12 years ago, and I start to realize that everything that I was taught about what it meant to build a synagogue uh, still connected to people, but wasn't necessarily intriguing or compelling or maintaining membership in the ways that it did when I was in the first decade of my rabbinate. I started realizing that, um, and I started to sociologically contextualize this, that, you know, once upon a time, it wasn't just a thing that everyone did in America to become part of a church or a synagogue. 
It was a patriotic American duty. It was sort of like fighting the communists back then to say, we may not like the religion that we're being given, but it's going to be our right not to like what we get to have by way of our American freedom. You know, no one's going to tell me to reject what I'm going to reject on my own, if that makes sense. So you'd come when the rabbi told you to come, at least when you had to. You, you paid what the rabbi told you to pay. But slowly but surely, as the world became more autonomous and people became prosumers as, as opposed to consumers, you know, you, where you could actually start to design the things that you actually wanted in your lives, people realized, you know, I don't have to listen to the rabbi. If he's going to make me feel guilty, if she's going to talk at me, if he's going to sing at me, if he's going to indoctrinate me, I actually don't have to do this anymore. I could find meaning and purpose in all these other places. And it occurred to me, not that I ever wanted to bore people, but it, nor did I want to guilt people, but it occurred to me that I better uh, figure out what menu I'm going to serve for people who are starving for meaning but are suspicious of the institution. And I didn't know what it all meant, but I knew that somehow just being a great rabbi in the ways that I was taught wasn't necessarily going to connect to people in terms of what it meant to be Jewish. So can we... Um understand a little bit more about what tribe is right in this context right that there's a it's a, a sort of a joint venture between these two synagogues and they provide the funding and then tribe sort of functions autonomously so this was i think one of the most important elements in tribe's origin is um, as we were speaking with people like blair and some of her peers they knew that they were the hot commodity that every jewish institution organization were trying to get their claws into and knew that as a commodity most of those places were coming with the objective of bringing you in as a member um, getting you to be coming forward as a philanthropist and a supporter and what was helpful in starting to brainstorm this with Matt and with Josh Danton is realizing that in forming a coalition and creating a partnership based on love and trust between two, in two institutions, we were doing something that was culturally disruptive and was effectively helping to convey you can believe us and trust in us because no one institution is going to be able to hawk you into membership because of the other. Um, the number of people that have come to us who feel more comfortable at Tribe than at many of the other experiences that are offered in the city, this is one of the first things that they bring up, is that uh, you've got multiple clergy from multiple institutions, and knowing even the philosophy that these two institutions are financially putting up the money to invest in Jewish connectivity and community, whether or not they end up becoming the pipeline of members into the congregation. You know, Matt, I don't want to speak for you, but I know for you and Robert, this was actually one of the things that you were investing in a future, talking about the menu, of wanting for them to believe that there are Jewish offerings that would repel them to walk into Jewish institutions later on in life. Now, it also comes with the challenge is whether or not Jewish institutions will be willing to offer that menu that they're taking of, partaking of here in tribe. I mean, that's sort of one of the questions that I'm, I'm curious. I mean, not, in some ways, it's not the most important question, and we're going to get into some of the more important questions later. But just on the very practical level, 
that there's a there's a which clearly all the synagogues are struggling with is that there's there are economic realities in play where if you have a, a building and a staff and all sorts of operations, you have to somehow pay for them. And synagogues are built whether it's a formal membership model or some quasi membership model with voluntary dues. But there's basically an idea that there's this user base of the synagogue and and they all pay money into it and that allows it to function. And how do you sort of, how do people accept the idea that now we're going to go out and build something that may or may not drive membership in the next generation, but it's going to cost us, you know, a fair chunk of money or at least time of our clergy, which is money uh, in the short term? How did did those conversations go uh, with the synagogue leadership? And and what, what were your sort of thoughts about that? that kind of question the sale was initially really easy because uh the one thing two things were going on one is i'm in 18 miles out of new york city so everyone knows that 20 year olds when they come out of college don't move back to the suburbs at least right away they 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 generally will move back with a spouse or a spouse and a child and every parent uh while their kid is here is worried about education after college is over they're worried about their kids staying jewish if they provided their kids with a well-rounded Jewish background and not suddenly in their minds, they say, my goodness, I want to make sure this continues. So I went to them and said, the kids are not here. They're in the city um, or the young adults are. And B, if we want a shot of them staying Jewish, we can't worry about where they land. We have to worry about them where they are now. And I, in turn, made a promise that if this worked, that whatever their initial investment was, I asked them for three or four years, and then I promised them that money would never be an issue because once it worked, then there would be money coming in from other sources within the synagogue and other sources outside of the synagogue. And all that's true. We're, we're budget neutral at this point. Um, I did get one of these questions that I expected more of. Someone once said to me, how many uh, people have showed up have given to our annual giving program? And I almost felt like I was being obnoxious because I started laughing. And he says, what are you laughing at? This is a serious matter. And I said, if we expect that this is the outcome, that you're going to get annual giving. Remember, that's besides the $3,000 that we charge per year for dues. I said, you're, you're actually going down the wrong road. We'll be lucky if these people feel attached to Judaism enough while simultaneously we're doing what's going to attach them for them to ever give us annual giving again. And uh, and someone else luckily at the table, because again, the, the, the laugh was not the kindest response and I didn't intend it to be that way. Someone said, we're not going to get annual giving, but we may save our children. And that's when the conversation ended. You know, we get on a Friday night in suburbia, two to three hundred people every Friday night. Now, most of my colleagues in this area would say, wow, you guys are doing great. You get, and by the way, our services are 530, which means people have to either leave work really early from the city or do whatever they do to get here. And it feels good. You know, and my rabbinic ego gets a little pump up for a moment. Um, it's not what the city is getting. You know, the, the Ben's probably getting 500 people on a Friday night, but it doesn't matter. I have 1,100 families, which is about 3,800 people, and I'm getting two to 300 people. That's a lousy number. I, you know, anyone else in any other field would be fired for that number. But we consider that success, you know, you know, maybe only baseball. If you hit 300, three out of 10 is considered like a, you know, $20 million contract. But if you're making souls at Sinai, you know, which is as the expression goes, it's pretty lousy. So 
We can choose to say, let's make our services better. We could yell at our people. We can encourage our people. We can give them free dinners. We could. But what happens if we start to think about reaching them um, in other ways? One of the things we're working on right now is we are uh, commissioning and creating a wisdom app, um, a meditation app. I know there's a million out there in the secular meditation world, but so far, and I'm, I'm not in competition. In fact, one of the things that I think will make synagogues work is to not be in competition. But we are creating an app where every day and not longer than 90 seconds will every congregate get a ping and it will be us teaching some piece of wisdom, uh, compassion, gratitude, forgiveness, love. I think you get the idea of what I'm talking about. And a way to practice that in their lives, if that at all piques their interest, they could then meditate on the same for five minutes. And if that piques their interest, they could then have an article, you know, about where this comes from and, and, and what it's about. My idea is that if we can help stop people and give them a sense of balance in a world that feels ever more off kilter uh, for a million different reasons that we could all take turns guessing, that they're going to say, wait a minute, my synagogue is actively trying to make sure that I can figure my life out, my relationships out, my job out in ways that I never saw that. I always saw them as a place to go for the service, for a wedding, for a bar mitzvah, for these things that ended up becoming transactional. And I'm trying to break through the transactional of the everyday to say, no, 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 for nothing, we are going to offer you this piece of wisdom. And I think, by the way, that will say to themselves, oh, I'm going to give them a second look. And maybe I am actually going to try to come on the Friday night where they want me because they're reaching me where I am. I no longer um, invested only in Jewish survival because that's coming at Judaism in a negative way. I'm about what it is that makes us thrive. Because the buzzwords of identity and survival are guilt-ridden, connected to, because, you know, we were oppressed and, and all that's true, but that's not a reason to be Jewish. So this is directed at whoever would like it or whichever multiple of you would like it. But um, this, this name of yours, Tribe, um, I am abundantly curious about the process that went into deciding it and the various factors were at play. And it's funny, um, I'm thinking, especially in the context of the answer that Matt, you gave earlier, where you talked about a few verbs and you mentioned surviving and you mentioned thriving. Um, I live in Providence, Rhode Island, and there's actually a really interesting organization here called Thrive. And it sounds like tribe, but it's it gets at something very different. Just to be honest, when I first heard the name tribe, I was like nervous about what what is this thing? Because when I hear tribe, um, and I'm not saying this is universal, but when I hear tribe, I, I, I think tribal, I think tribalist. Um, and it, it sends my mind floating to places that maybe I shouldn't assume, but that send me a message, not that 10 to 20% of the people in the room wouldn't be Jewish, but that alternatively, it's mostly, you know, Jews gathering with other Jews. But um, basically, I'm saying all of this jumbled stuff to say what what is behind tribe as a name? And and what is the what are what do you hope people understand from that name that would cause them to be intrigued by what you're offering? So not that Blair and I want to recount the very painful process of coming up with this name, but uh, a few things that ultimately I think helped us land on the name is we're in an era where millennials are, are mostly very resistant to the idea of gen genetic identity. Um, 
And I think, you know, as a corollary, one of the things that uh, rabbis and Jewish institutions are going to have to deal with is this question of genetic Judaism, um, this idea of being versus doing. And what Tribe was really trying to get at was this idea of could we reclaim one of the foundations of Jewish organizational life, at least for the past 2,000 years, which is this idea of gathering together in smaller cohorts. Um, you know, this idea of minion, of how 10 people can come together and create the most sacred. And you don't need a Jewish professional in order to have a pathway of authenticity. Could we reclaim some of the biblical notions that we were one united nation, but we were also an era of Rab. We were a mixed multitude made up of many, many different tribes. And part of what would happen was the diversity that would come from allowing those tribes to each individually flourish, but then have ways of convening them together. And the idea that, uh, behind the name is that on a monthly basis, we would gather the tribes. But the idea is, is that we would have these small groups of belonging that would be sparked by the passions of our various leaders. Um, so if you're passionate about mindfulness, great, start up a tribe. Um, if you're interested in social justice, great, start up a tribe. And part of the idea in this also is a way of subtly seeing if we could reshape the idea of Jewish identity as a way of it being less about ethnic belonging and more about human belonging. Could it be about what we do together as a source of connectivity um, rather than simply something that we're born into? And you know, you know what's interesting is that uh, in the early part of the century, uh, coming out of Europe, uh, people did everything they could to assimilate and be as American as possible. And we became, we, we, genetics were important to us, but being generic was just as important to us. So we want to do everything we could. That's why our synagogues are built like churches. And so many of the, the, uh, the things that we see in a synagogue remind us of a church, which it doesn't bother me one way or the other necessarily. But we raised this generation that became millennials like this, where they were being marinated in ethical universalism. And it, so the question was, what would it actually mean to do as Jewish? And all they got was, you are Jewish because your mother or eventually you know, patrilineal descent because your father was Jewish, but not because of what you did. And that, I think, besides guilt and besides hierarchy, that in itself, this, this generic sense of Judaism was really a turnoff. Because what's compelling about that? So now you have people who actually, um, and I'll take one little sidestep and say, I think tribe, and Lex, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, presuming what I don't know about you, but I think tribal, tribe and tribalism bothers us more than ever because of the politics of today, not necessarily because of the religion of today. Like, yeah, we've, we've done everything we can now to make us pitted against each other. But at the same time, we are really interested in who we are as human beings and what our identities are about. And Ben just said it beautifully, not by virtue of our eye color or our hair color, but by virtue of what we do. Um, you can no longer, and Dan and I were just kidding as we saw each other on video before, are we familiar to each other because we met each other or because we met each other at some other Jewish occasion, perhaps even Sinai. But you can't, Dan, say that anymore because now one of 10, and it may be more because it's a few years ago since I saw the last survey, one of 10 Jews in this country are of color. And uh, that's an extraordinary number. And my sister, who's married to an African-American, has two daughters who appear more African-American than they do white and whose names are Hebrew, Nava and Asada. And interestingly enough, again, the connection, they belong to Ben's uh, synagogue. But her, Nava's uh, heroes in life are Rosa Parks and Moses. 
And she's been saying that since she's been a little girl. But if you saw Nava, one of the most offensive things you could say, but very easily say is, you don't look Jewish. And, um, or my very dear friend is a rabbi in Cleveland. His name is Rabbi Joshua Luigi Caruso. And, you know, whoever knew from a rabbi named Rabbi Luigi Caruso? And, uh, but the truth is, is that, that, that we are all of that. And uh, this is going to sound like a big jump. But the reason the Pew study, which seems to be what drives us all, is so darn dangerous, is because we all land on this thing called none, N-O-N-E. And all none means is that when I take this survey, there's not enough description to describe what my identity is. There's not enough description to say he is Jewish, married to a Buddhist, whose father was African-American, whose mother once came from a different land. There's just not enough ways to describe us these days. But it doesn't mean we don't want to triple down on our identity. We just don't want it to be genetic and we don't want it to be generic either. Matt, let me follow up on that just by sort of asking you to talk about the way, again, the way that the sort of American synagogue model fits into all of these changes. Because, you know, it's interesting, we've gotten, uh, I remember early on in the podcast, getting feedback from a bunch of rabbis saying, don't you think you, you don't think rabbis agree with what you're saying? We all agree with what you're saying. And I'm like, okay, but then why aren't you doing different things? Right. And what I, what I appreciate very much about what you've done is that with Tribe, you have done a different thing. And I'm curious for you to reflect about what other kind of practical different things might be done or might at least be reflected upon. I mean, let me give you one example. We talked um, uh, recently with uh, Rabbi Jonah Pesner, who runs the Reform Religious Action Center, um, and, you know, really sort of focused on social justice. And as he was describing what the RAC does, you know, I'm thinking t in my head as a member of Gen Generation X, uh, you know, I'm not even a millennial, that if there was like a local rack that met every Shabbat, right, and we could go out to, you know, for some kind of protest every Shabbat or, you know, some kind of um, lobbying every Shabbat or whatever it might be, I would be there every week. You know, um, but I'm not going to go to a synagogue service every week. And it's not even a way to engage me in in the synagogue such that I will eventually go to a synagogue service every week if I if I'm engaged through social justice. I actually want my Jewish practice to be a practice of social justice. But that's not really offered, at least not by synagogues in, in most communities. And on the flip side, right, we have a, a world of synagogues that sort of come about because of some very particular demographic realities of the latter half of the 20th century, such as, you know, synagogues being primarily divided based on geography or based on religious denomination, which aren't necessarily at all relevant uh, anymore. And I wondered if maybe, you know, for example, synagogues could differentiate themselves by specializing. So this instead of all synagogues being all generalists, you know, well, maybe this is the synagogue that's just about social justice. And this is a synagogue that's just about intense prayer. And this is a synagogue that's just about, you know, whatever, you know, and or that like what you talked about earlier, that more and more synagogues should be cooperating with each other and should be creating programs together and figure out a business model where they're not in competition with one another, but they're actually figuring out a way to just basically be the local place of this larger enterprise or whatever the answer might be. I, I guess I'm wondering what is your thinking about what is happening or maybe what ought to be happening, but you're also frustrated that you're not able to find the folks to talk about this with, you know, that says like really 
um, do we need, and if we do need, how can we bring about very, very practically a real rethinking of the model of how Jews are, you know, implanted in their organizations to live Jewish lives? There's a story, and I, and I wish I could remember so I could give it proper credit, of a father who was estranged from synagogue life, but somehow his, his 12-year-old son, Dad, 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 I want to go. So they go on Kol Nidre, and they have this dramatic moment, of course, where all the Torahs come out of the Ark, and the empty Ark is there, and there's all this uh, uh, busyness around the Ark at that point, and the kid says to his dad, what's going on, and, 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 and what is that? pointing at the ark and he just turns to his kid cynically and says that's God's business office and uh, and when I told this to my congregation there was like a little bit of a laugh like you just gave but there was also this audible oh and I looked up and I said oh is right and I said that oh is because we have this really difficult relationship economic relationship with faith don't we where people feel like they have to pay for their faith and they're not even sure what faith means so now I'm paying for something that I'm not even sure what it means. So for you, Dan, <clears throat> it's going to the rack every Friday night. That would work for about a quarter of my congregation. But another quarter would probably tell me that I'm teaching politics instead of spirituality. And there would be a whole other. So one of the things that we have to figure out, and I'm actually going to give you concrete uh, examples of that. One of the things we have to figure out is how to make sure that people don't feel like we have their our hands in their pockets. So what you want know to really believe, I believe that... There's too many of us who are saddled with buildings that are, this is going to sound horrible, that are like cathedrals. And they cost a huge amount of money to run. The boilers themselves have to be replaced at hundreds of thousands of dollars. The roofs for the same. And in my area, I live in a very highly concentrated Jewish area. So the, there were 10 or 15 thriving synagogues, plus Jewish family services, vocational services, federation, you can imagine. If we all sold our buildings, all of us, and we probably all together collect $300 million. And I mean it, that much money. And we all went into one building where the only thing we didn't do together, because Jews will never figure this out, is we didn't pray together. I know it sounds crazy, but everything else, social workers, executive directors, swimming pools, therapists, yoga, spin, all of it. We put it into one place and we told our donors, all of whom we asked, the same people to give us money, that the final gift would be given to this building and they wouldn't have to give again to this community because it was just going to be this. I think, again, not only would it be a smart business decision, but it would be an out and a spiritual decision, but an outstanding branding decision where we say, where we used to say, don't, you can't even move the pulpit up or down. We're so married to this specific pulpit that that's gone already. You know, if, if we're so married to what a place and its architecture looks like, because we are 170 years old, Rudolf Shulman is 175 years old, we're going to have to give them that fast because the smaller places that aren't able to live on their history are closing very quickly. I, I love this question. I love the, the map you gave of sort of one institution that would house all of, all of the Jewish communal stuff in your area. And what's funny is I hear it. And for me, that's actually what multi, that, that's what communities I've lived in have had. Um, so I'm the I'm the strange Jewish. I'm very strange um, Jew, on a number of levels, but very strange Jewish professional um, who has only lived in small and mid-sized Jewish communities. I've the, the three places I've ever lived are Milwaukee, um, mid-sized Jewish community, Providence, um, mid-sized but a little smaller Jewish community, and Jackson, Mississippi. Very small Jewish community. Um, and 
in two of so in Jackson there was actual there were actually only two Jewish buildings in in the town. There was one synagogue. It was technically it, it was a reformed synagogue, but it served as the synagogue for anybody who wanted to use a synagogue basically. Um, and there was the organization I worked for, the Institute of Southern Jewish Life. And then in Providence, we have one building that is jointly the JCC, the Federation, um, and a couple other things. And then there are separate synagogue buildings, but certainly there are far fewer than than in a than in a large metropolis. And the reason I bring this up is because I want to like, I I want to address something that we've heard from listeners as feedback sometimes, which is, you know, they'll send notes and they'll say, oh, I love this thing I just heard about, you know, whatever organization it was. I wish we had that in my small community. Um, and we could never have that in my small community is often what people have communicated. And they're not wrong necessarily. I mean, it would, be, it would be very challenging to pull off something like tribe in Providence um, for a number of reasons. Um, and I guess what I would love to hear from from y'all is, could something like tribe be mapped to a smaller community? And what would what would need to, like, what's sort of the DNA, the, the core of tribe that, that you'd want to keep? And what are the things that could change for different kind of contexts where maybe it's that, you know, few, there's less public transportation, so you, you can't, you have to hold things in a smaller area or travel around or figure figure out ways around that. Or it's that there's just fewer Jews. So you have to be willing to say, you know what, it's going to be more than 10 to 20 percent not Jewish in the room. It's going to be 50 percent or 60 percent. Like what what are some of those ways that people in in smaller communities who might be listening and thinking, oh, I could never do that. How could they maybe think about doing so? I'll just take a very quick stab. I mean, I think that part of the beauty of sort of technology now is that you can leverage, you know, those mediums to sort of, you know, expand the community beyond sort of the geographic boundaries of what you've got going on. And it's interesting. I mean, even as somebody who lives in a in a high populated, highly populated area of Jews, I was listening to Matt's um, sort of idea of these, um, you know, little daily pings that you get. Uh, that actually resonates with me way more than being in a in on a, sitting on a Friday night in synagogue with 500 people with with Ben and no no offense Ben but but it actually <laughs> it, it, to me to my sort of my lifestyle that that um, sort of text message model works for me. Just to pick up on that, you know, two things that come to mind. Um, one is I think an important power dynamic shift that needs to occur in the Jewish world. Um, and I actually believe that the profession that Matt and I belong to, in my opinion, is one of the biggest issues in modern Judaism. Uh, we have over-professionalized Judaism. We rabbis actually in pretty much every movement have embraced an ecclesiastical power and it creates a power dynamic of power over. And what's happened is we've created generations of Jews that passively believe they need to be in the presence of clergy in order to have meaning and authenticity, when we are now in a world where there's a marketplace of meaning that's incredibly crowded, and people are able to have it easily accessible and have it in a way that actually revitalizes their sense of meaning and purpose in life and actually makes them feel like they have a voice and they individually are needed and necessary. The average person who walks into any synagogue they don't feel needed and necessary other than a checkbook. Um, at Road of Shalom, I imagine similar at TBJ and many other large synagogues is, aside from a Shabbat greeter, you could theoretically come in, 
not say anything to anyone, no one would say anything to you, and leave and never be seen. And as we're hearing from every corner of the world, what people want right now is to feel like they have worth in this world. They have purpose in their world. They actually need it in order to feel like they're thriving and flourishing. So I think one of the things that we could do, and it doesn't matter where you are, is to shift that dynamic of power and to start, start moving away from needing a rabbi or a cantor or a paid Jewish professional and start to empower our communities by flipping that's on its head. And that is one of the foundational principles of tribe. We're experimenting with it here in Rota Shalom um, and many other places are experimenting with it. But I think the rise of organizations like Immerse NYC as they train cohorts of mikvah guides is saying you don't need to have an ordination certificate on your wall to create the most sacred experiences in Judaism. And organizations like Mahon Hadar that are saying you don't need to be an ordained rabbi in order to know enough, in order to lead classes and ignite fabulous, engaging Jewish conversations. So that's one thing. The other thing I think is looking at what and picking up on what Matt was saying about brick and mortar is you look at retail and what retail has done in the realm of brick and mortar is almost nobody buys anything in brick and mortar anymore, but you have companies like Apple that have chosen to reimagine brick and mortar as giving people an experience, an experience that they can be the shapers of and the bearers of. So no longer are most people walking into Apple in order to buy their iPad or their iPhone. Very few people buy things in Apple stores. They go in and they get to shape an experience that allows them to engage the way they want to, and they have an experience for most of them, an experience that makes them feel seen and heard and needed. And here in New York, there's lots been written on this, lots of people walk into an Apple store so they can have a meaningful conversation with somebody. And what would it be wherever we live in this country if we looked at walking into a synagogue as not to be with the purpose of prayer, but for people when they walk in to have an experience, an experience that they can actually help dictate and shape and that helps them come away feeling needed, necessary, and seen. I'm curious again to sort of uh, ask you as folks that are on the ground, what you're hearing from non-millennials, from people in Generation X, from baby boomers, from even older folks that are saying, you know, I have certain hopes and needs that I haven't quite figured out how Judaism can address or is addressing, and I would love it if some of those needs could be could be met. And the other piece of it, I, I think, connects to what uh, you were saying earlier about how what's so powerful about tribe is the giving up of rabbinic authority and the empowering of the people who have the needs. What would give rabbis the kind of confidence to do that? You know, the sense that if we put the people in charge, it's not going to get all messed up. It's a little bit of an illusion that um, I, as a rabbi, sometimes um, feel warm and fuzzy about at night uh, that actually I'm in control when I think in reality, it's um, a whole bunch of other people that are paying my paycheck. And I think we are seeing a larger story of religion in America that is very clearly saying that institutionalized religion is on the decline. As I think Matt said perfectly you know however we have a huge huge cohort of people that are putting more time energy and money across every generation into elements of flourishing of their own wellness of meaning of spirituality and what this says to us is that if we as rabbis are going to try to claim control by trying to say to everyone what we have always done is exactly what you need and you're an idiot if you don't want to sit with us and be worshiping with us and read all the books that we love to read 
at this, at eventually, and I don't think it's that far down the line, we're going to find ourselves without people who are paying our paychecks. Um, and so I think to some of this is, is kind of getting rid of the myth of the rabbi. You know, we sometimes forget that, you know, uh, Hillel was a wood chopper and Shammai worked in construction. And these were people in and of the world that were teaching Torah that was in and of the world and were being wildly radical and innovative and constantly prototyping these things. And I think one of the things we've forgotten in our kind of rabbinic claim or grasping at authenticity is the people have always been the shapers of Judaism. And always throughout, throughout time, rabbis have often failed when they've tried to calcify and solidify things, you know? Thanks, thanks for that. We've been, we've been, up, we've been uplifting that theme um, over the course of the last few months, especially with some of our discussions on folk Judaism. So I really appreciate that. Um, as, as we arc towards the close, I guess I'd love um, for e- just to hear from each of you one, one last time. Um, as our as our listeners are, you know, flip closing this episode out, flipping to their next podcast, going to make dinner, whatever they're doing. What's what's the last thing about tribe that makes it special? That makes you proud to be part of it? That you want them to to hold with them as they, you know, take leave of us and head to whatever's next? I think that tribe is very special because it's responsive to the community's needs. Um, However community is defined, it's defined very broadly. Um, That's one, by the way, thing I'm particularly proud of is that we are open to all comers, um, which is, it's great. Um, And everybody feels welcome um, and it's very organic. Uh, I think that's, that's really, really special. Um, But, but there are some things that you can't, you know, replace a rabbi for. I do, I, I want to make that very clear because I don't think tribe is looking to sort of displace rabbis and have everything be entirely lay-led. For social action things, you know, you don't necessarily need a, a rabbi to be present, but um, I do think it's important for us, you know, and I speak, I think I can speak for, you know, majority of the people in, in our group that, you know, there is something special about having um, a rabbi, you know, that infuses sort of a special sense of spirituality. Yeah, I want to say something that maybe we haven't said yet, that, that uh, there are obviously, I think obviously, um, different denominations of Judaism. And, and one of the privileges of being a reform rabbi is that I've been given, I've been, I have been given unbelievable latitude on so many different levels uh, religiously, spiritually, uh, politically, sociologically, vocationally, to the more I explore, the more I expand, uh, the better rabbi I'm going to be. Now, it doesn't mean that rabbis of a different generation didn't believe that their word was the word. Uh, I think Ben said that beautifully. And, and, and Dan, when you ask us if we need to educate differently, I think we have to continue to educate in a lot of the same ways we have by way of literacy. We just better be teaching our rabbis to listen a lot more than they've been taught because generally we're taught to speak and we need to be taught to listen because we're still going to be shapers, but we shouldn't be shapers of our own legacy. We should be shapers of the legacy of the people we serve. The other thing I would say is that maybe, you know, maybe simply said and obviously said is that Everything is really complicated. That the world has, as much as it's been streamlined in all the ways we've talked about, it's made it more complicated. It used to be that you had to go to one place, you were told what to do, and you and there was a comfort in being told what to do and how to do it. Now, because we're all participating in that process, 
we're in this process of churning. And, um, and we're, again, we're not sure what the other side is going to look like. So the point is, is not just to give up on it or to double down on what was. It's to somehow walk hand in hand the way we always have in covenant with one another um, and knowing that we're going to trust each other to come to the other side. And it might look different, even have a different name, um, but it's, it, it's going to be something as sacred as it was a long time ago. We just have to be able to trust one another, not to hold on to things for our own sense of self. I think uh, one of the elements of Tribe that I'm most proud of is what it is, as Matt, you were just talking about listening. I think for us to model what it is to actually look at a generation that is often mocked um, as being the coddled generation, as being the generation with the silver spoon, as being the generation that never grows up and never launches in life, you know, all these monikers that are attributed to millennials. It's also a generation that bears tremendous wisdom that I actually believe we should take pride in listening to. It's a generation that has grappled with a more interconnected world where there is more surfacing of different identities, more voice given to the margins, more hatred that is brought to the surface, more of just about anything than any previous generation has ever had to encounter. And this is a generation that has grown up learning how to navigate all of those complexities, all of those multiple voices. They've had to figure out how to find a way of understanding history, knowing that there is no singular voice in history, and it is always taught by the victors. They've grown up having the pedestals of every hero toppled over and still have to figure out what it means to have a role model in life. And this is a generation that's grown up realizing that we should be wary of large institutions and organizations and to be wary of the corruption and the bloat that comes with the building of these infrastructures. And so they have things to say. They have desires that have helped shape them and turn them into a generation that probably is driving the, I guess, the wheel of their own personal ship more than certainly my generation and I believe the generation before me. Wow. Thanks to all three of you for this awesome episode. We we don't usually get to have three voices on one episode and it certainly made for a rich conversation. So thanks to all of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. We hope all of you out there enjoyed this conversation with the folks from Tribe, and we want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with either a one-time donation or a monthly recurring gift. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>